0: Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the Met, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Now enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome all of you who are back on campus. It's great to have all of you in the room. We did this for a while with nobody in here, and that was uh, that was a strange event, but we were so thrilled to see so many people who were watching online. And those of you who were sharing the services, we had far more watching us online than we've ever had in this building. I mean, we had 20, 30,000 on Easter weekend. It's just been incredible. The numbers of people that we're able to reach You see, the pandemic doesn't stop the work of God. Absolutely not. The Bible says the word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. And this series, Unstoppable, we've seen the power of God at work even during the time of a pandemic. So thank you for going online with us. Thank you for sharing The service was with us. We've seen so many people give their hearts to Christ. So much life change, even through this great technology. And to be able to have you guys back on campus is wonderful. I wanna thank our staff and our volunteers for all the hard work they continue to do each week to make these experiences happen. Uh, As you know, we've gone to a lot of extra steps to make sure that we are complying with the rules and we wanna do this right. We wanna do it in a safe way. And uh, so that's, um, I want to thank our volunteers for helping that happen. So glad you're here. We're in a series called Unstoppable. We started out the series talking about how the church is unstoppable. When the Bible says, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The church is simply unstoppable. There's not a power in the world that can stop a Bible-drilled, Holy Spirit-filled, Jesus-thrilled church. It's unstoppable. And then we said, that the presence of God in your life is unstoppable. I don't care where you are or what you're going through. God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. His presence is with you. Even now, you have the unstoppable presence of God in your life. You recognize that. Do You realize that. Uh, You have his presence with you. We don't just have to invite the Spirit of God to come into one of these worship services. We bring him with us he's living within us. And so where two or more gathered, he's in our midst, he's in our presence. And so we have his presence that is unstoppable. Well, this weekend, I want to talk about the unstoppable purpose of God in his children. Do you know God has a purpose for your life? He absolutely has a purpose for your life. And I know at some point in life, as you get older, you start looking for significance, you start searching for meaning, Uh, You kind of look at your life and say, is it mattering? Am I making a difference with my life? What am I doing? What am I accomplishing here? And so all of us have grappled with that from time to time, and everybody will from time to time. But I want to assure you, if you're struggling with that a little bit this morning, whether you're young or you're up in years, (laughs) I want to tell you God has a purpose for your life. Absolutely has a purpose for your life. One of those uh, great verses that really has ministered to me Uh, during the time we're adjusting to Cindy's homegoing, is the Ecclesiastes 3 verse, where the Bible says to everything there is a season. We have seasons of life. We have good ones and we have bad ones. We have happy ones and we have sad ones. Our our country is in a season. We're in a season. You're in a season. Uh, To everything there is a season. We all go through seasons of life. And then he says, accompanying that season there is time. God will give you time to go through the season, and the time, listen, is connected to purpose. Back to what I want to talk to you about this morning. As long as we have purpose, God gives us time. Now, it's not my purpose, it's his purpose. Because I think about that in context of Cindy's homegoing. I certainly wasn't ready for her to go. My kids, or grandkids, wasn't ready for her to go. Our church and my friends and all that know her were not ready for her to go. And I had a little struggle with my faith and my kind of my argument with God, like, she had purpose. Why did you call her? She, her purpose could not have been done. And um, shoot, boy! Every time I walk down that road, I'm sorry. Thank you. I'll get it together here. Give me a second. But what I uh, what I kept hearing the Lord say it wasn't your purpose for her; it was mine, right? And so as long as God has a purpose, whether we are done with someone or they're done with us, as long as he's not done with them, they're not going anywhere. But listen, the minute their purpose on this earth is done, they hear a voice that we don't hear. They hear someone say, come up higher, and they simply step from the temporal into the eternal. They say, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And that happens the moment purpose is done. But listen, The fact that you're in this room, the fact that you're watching me right at this moment is proof positive God's not finished with you yet. Your purpose is not completed yet. God still has something for you to do. So as we wrap our heads around purpose and what is the purpose of God, let me give you an overarching reality. And the overarching reality is the greatest purpose of God in our lives, are you ready for this, is to bring him glory. Now, I know that sounds awfully simple, but in it, it's awfully powerful, and God has a purpose for everything he's created, and the purpose of all of his creation is to bring him glory. God didn't create things because he was lonesome. <laughs> God didn't create everything because he needed something to do. God created everything that he's created so that all of his creation, particularly his greatest creation, which was mankind, would bring him glory. Now, what does it mean to bring God glory? We've heard that expression. What does that mean? How would you define it? Let me give you a way I define it. I think glory could be defined as everything that God is. Everything that he is is glorious. He, he's glorious in all of his characteristics and all of his attributes. He is, he's glorious. So when a church brings him glory, that means a church is a reflection of all that he is. He's loving. He's accepting. He's forgiving. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. I mean, go down the list. When a church begins to reflect that as the body of Christ, then they are glorifying him because they are reflecting who he is. So apply that to your life and mine. The purpose of God primarily in my life is he wants me to give him glory. He wants my life to be a reflection of who he is. In fact, there's a great verse in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and verse 20. The Bible says you're bought with a price. You've received Jesus. You go to the cross. You invite him into your heart. You're bought with the price. What is the price? The price was his death on the cross, his blood. That was the price paid for our sin, satisfied the justice of God on sin. And so when we receive his payment for our sin at the cross, he says you then are bought with a price. And then notice the word therefore, And I've told you, when you see the word therefore, look and see what it's there for, he'll connect what he's about to say with what he just said. Because you've received me as savior, because you've been bought with a price, glorify God. There it is, purpose of God. Glorify God, how? In your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He bought us, redeemed us. And so my response to that is to bring him glory in my body, that's what I do, how I live my life, how I treat my neighbor. And in my spirit, that's the attitude with which I do it. You ever see somebody do the right thing but with a terrible attitude? I mean, he's saying, look, let me challenge you, not only to do right things on the outside, but do it with the right motivation from the inside. Glorify him in your body and in your spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians 10:31, he said, Look, I'll break it down. Whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So get this, the overarching principle of God's purpose for our life is to bring him glory. Look with me at Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verse 7, he says, everyone, everyone who is called by not my name, note now, whom I have created for my glory. I've created them for my glory. I've created them to be a reflection of who I am. He said, everyone I've created from our glory, I have formed him. Yes, I've made him. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this thing. You can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. There's the unstoppable work of God. He will carry it on to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let me put this together in a practical way that will help us understand how we fulfill purpose. And the purpose ultimately bringing Uh, being to bring God glory. It's a progression. Notice number one, it begins with understanding how we were formed, how we were formed. Isaiah said, God said, I formed you, I formed you to bring me glory. Now I'm talking about the original design. When you go back to the Garden of Eden and you see how God in Genesis chapter one said, uh, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God says, we're going to create this uh, man. We're going to create woman. We're going to do this in our image, in our likeness. We call it the imago Dei. It means the image of God. Now, in its original, in its original form, man was created in perfection. No flaws. Absolutely perfect. In perfect relationship with God. In perfect fellowship with God. When you read the early record, you see how God would come to Adam and Eve and he would walk with them in the cool hours of the day and they would talk together, they had fellowship. Can I tell you that was the purpose of God in creating mankind is he wanted a relationship with man. He wanted fellowship with man. Can I tell you that hadn't changed? Have you ever stopped to think about it that the God of heaven wants a relationship with you and the God of heaven is interested in the things that interest you? He wants a relationship with you, and in that relationship, he wants to enjoy fellowship with you. And so this was the original design. God formed man perfectly. He formed man in the garden, and he formed man for that fellowship and for that relationship. David wrapped his mind around it, and he said in the 139th Psalm, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And can I say to that, God don't make no junk. He made you. He celebrates you. He's pleased with you, and I'm suggesting to you that when you look at the original design, God formed man so man would have relationship and have fellowship. But here's the problem. You have God forming man, but you have the second thing, which is man deformed. Deformed. Yeah, and the formation is perfect. The imago day, perfect in every way. There's relationship and there's fellowship, but you see the second thing that happens in the garden is you see deformed, man deformed. You see the entrance of sin. Now, when the devil uh, tempted uh, Adam and Eve there in Genesis chapter three, when you look at the original temptation, the original temptation to them was not something that on the surface appeared to be bad. The devil says, uh, Well, if you eat of the tree of this, even though you think God forbid you to do it, but if you'll do it in the day you do it, you'll be like God. Don't you want to be like God? So it wasn't a temptation that on the surface appeared to be uh, something bad. On the surface, it appeared to be something good. Don't you want to be like God? So he didn't say, don't you want to be like me? So the temptation wasn't to fall down, but it was to fall up. And by the way, the first thing the devil did when he came to Eve was he questioned God's word. Has God said? That's significant the most significant thing in all the world is what does God say? What does the Bible say about this? I mean, I've got opinions. We all have opinions. All God's children have opinions. But at the end of the day, our opinions mean nothing if they're not supported by God's word. My job as a pastor and a preacher and a teacher is not to stand on top of the Bible or in front of the Bible. My job is to stand behind the Bible and beneath it. The most significant thing is what you take away from here is what does the Bible say? What does God's word say to my life? And I'm suggesting to you that when the devil came on the scene, the first thing he says before he tempts her to be like God, he says, is that what God said? Are you sure? And man, he put a big old question mark where God had placed an exclamation point. And the first thing the devil will do is he'll tempt you uh, concerning what God has said. And so you have Adam and Eve yielding to the temptation, and you have how sin entered the picture. And the Bible says in Romans 5, 12, just as through one man, sin entered the world, death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. And all of a sudden in the garden, you see man who had fellowship with God and man who had relationship with God because of sin, deformed. they're separated from God. Sin is a separator. Sin always separates people from God. And the problem is, the Bible says we were born in sin. David said, in sin my mother conceived me. Uh, The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. What what does the word sin mean? It uh, it It means to miss the mark. What is the mark? Perfection. If it were possible for you to live a sinless life and you could meet the mark of perfection, you could enter into heaven without Jesus. I mean, if it were possible for you to live a sinless life and never have done anything, thought anything, said anything, n- not, not even entertained anything that was, if that, if, if that were possible, you could enter into heaven. You could bypass it all because you would be perfect, perfected. But let me help you with some of it. The Bible says the thought of foolishness of sin. Let me ask, who has not had at least one foolish thought since you've been in here? I'm just suggesting to you this morning, we've all sinned. So it's not justice we want, it's mercy. (laughs) It's mercy. And sin separated man from God, so man needed a savior. And so you have the Messiah who's prophesied and who's promised who will come and make it possible for us to be reconnected to God. He would satisfy God's justice on sin through his sacrifice on the cross. But in this in this disobedience in the garden, in this yielding to this temptation from the enemy. You had the entrance of sin into humanity, and sin separated man from God. Again, we're born with a sinful nature. We're sinners initially by nature, and then we're sinners by choice. So sin separates us from God. By the way, sin subjugates us to the power of the evil one. We have a power within us that we have to overcome, and within our own strength, we're not able to overcome his power. We have to have the presence of God to overcome the power of the evil that's within all of our hearts. When Jeremiah was writing about the heart in Jeremiah nine seventeen, he said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know the condition of his own heart? All of this happened in And sin entered the picture. The the man that God created who was formed in perfection is now deformed because of sin. And sin has been passed on generationally all the way through because of the original sin that happened in the garden. And then as a result of that, you and I are struggling still with the collateral damage, with the byproducts of that original sin. For the first time in all of human history, they were introduced to sorrow. They'd never known sorrow before. Wasn't a part of the original design. Sorrow came about as a result of sin. And then there were the, now they're introduced to the idea of suffering. Suffering hadn't been a part of the deal. That was in the original. God didn't desire his, his creation to suffer, but because of sin, sorrow and suffering came about. Because of sin, separation came about. Now they're feeling the absence of God who's no longer walking with them in the day because of the sin issue has separated them from their God. So you have man formed, man deformed. Now track with me on this progression. Then you see man reformed. You see this opportunity for man to be right with God. You see this chance to bridge this gap and for a man to know God and to have his sins forgiven, to be able to have a relationship with God and not just relationship, but fellowship with God. All of that can come back. And so God provided a way whereby man could be reformed. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, he said, you were washed and you are sanctified and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Do you catch those three things? You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Man, what happens the day you embrace his embrace of you and the day you say yes to his yes for you and the day you accept his acceptance of you and the day you receive him into your life, he washes you. He cleanses you. He cleanses you. Listen to the sins of your past. He cleanses you of the sins of your present. And By the way, he cleanses you of all the sins of your future. People struggle with that. They wonder, well, if I do something, you know, going forward, I mean, is it possible that God will kick me out and he'll, he'll separate himself from me and I worry about that? Listen, uh, all sins when Jesus died on the cross, all sins were in the future. All sins were in the future. How is it at the moment you receive him, your future sins would not be covered? All those sins are covered. Here's the problem. Christ followers continue to sin, The best any of us will ever be are sinners saved by grace. The difference is it does not now affect our relationship to God. It affects our fellowship with God. Jesus said in John 3, Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. When that relationship is established, you cannot unborn yourself physically. That which is spirit is spirit. You cannot unborn yourself spiritually. So what happens? It's not relationship that's broken now. It's fellowship. You understand that if you're married or you're dating somebody, you could be in a good relationship and be out of fellowship. Talk to the hand. What? I mean, you can be in a relationship with someone and love them, but don't want to be around them right now. You love them, you don't like them. Well, can I tell you that can happen in your relationship with God. I know a lot of people that just kind of walked away. And the way I know they belong to him is he eventually brings them home. He brings them back. What's my point? My point is in this this reformation, this regeneration, uh, this this restoration that God does in the life of those who have been uh, uh, victims of the fall, part of it is he washes us from our sins. And then the Bible says he sanctifies us. Now, don't be afraid of that word. I've heard different pastors talk about sanctification and they tie it to sin. That sanctification somehow means sinless perfection. The problem is it's not a good interpretation of the word. If you want to know how a word is applied in scripture or how, in other words, how a word is defined in scripture, you uh, employ something called the law of first mention. The law of first mention. What it means is you go back and you find the place this word was first used in scripture and you see how was that word defined the first time it was used in the Bible. And then what you'll discover is every time you see that word reoccurring in scripture, you apply the same definition and you'll have it right. The law of first mention. Well, the first time you see the word sanctified in the Bible, it has nothing to do with sin. The Bible says in Genesis 1, and God sanctified the seventh day and made it holy. He talked about a day being sanctified. What did he do with the day? He set it apart. He made that day different than any other day of the week. Apply that to your life and mind. Once we've experienced this reformation, once we have been washed by the power of his blood and the power of the Holy Spirit and we're cleansed of our sins... He sets us apart. He makes us unique. The Bible talks about us being a peculiar people. That's not a bad thing, so don't shrink away from that idea. It just means that you now have an ability because of the presence of God in you, you now have a power within you greater than the pressure around you. You can swim upstream. You can go against the flow. You can make great decisions because the Holy Spirit can give you wisdom and discernment. So my point is, when you have been washed, you have now been sanctified. God has given you a power that makes you unique. And then he says, you're justified. Great definition of justification is simply this. He's made us just as if I'd never sinned. He doesn't see any of your sins. And so I tell you this morning, if God's forgiven you, forgive yourself. So you see man formed. You see man deformed. You see man reformed. Let me hear the fourth word. Now you see man conformed. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Put that together. God foreknew, he has foreknowledge, he's sovereign, meaning God looks down time and he sees what I will or won't do. He looks down time and he sees what you will or will not do. It's called foreknowledge, to know something beforehand. And what happens when God uh, has this foreknowledge is he then predetermines certain things to happen in your life and mine based on his foreknowledge. That's all it is. We, we get the same word pro, uh, prognostic, uh, pro, uh, prognostic from uh, uh, prognosis. Couldn't lie, I can't talk. From that idea of, of uh, predestined. It's to, it's to be able to look ahead, to be able to make a forecast, to be able to make a determination. So you have God, according to foreknowledge, is predetermining certain things to happen. So he looks down, he knows what I will do, what I will not do. He'll create certain environments and things to happen. According to Romans, the verse before that, verse 828, he says all those things that happen uh, uh, ultimately happen for my good and his glory. All things work together. So you have God working these things together, looking down, knowing how I'm going to respond to the things that are working in my life right now, and he will predetermine certain things that will happen based on what he knows I'll do and won't do. And the ultimate result of that is I'll be conformed in the image of his son. Do you put that together? So God is working in your life right now. Maybe it's a bad circumstance. Maybe it's a good circumstance. But if you belong to him, God is working in and through those things, knowing already what you will do or will not do. And based on the decisions he know you'll make, he's going to predetermine some things to happen. So that the end result is we're going to be a reflection of who he is. Conformed into the image of his son. So formed, deformed, reformed, conformed. Let me give you the last one. How about transformed? Now, this is where you and I have a huge role in the process. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the world. Whoa, wait, there's our word again. I just talked about that. Get the contrast. Over here a moment ago, I said don't be conformed. We're being conformed to the image of his son. Over here in Romans 12, he says, but be careful that you're not conformed to the world. You see the contrast. Conformed to the image of the son, conformed to the world. Now, what does it mean to be conformed to the world? Well, let's define the word world. What does the word world mean? The word world means system. A system. A system that does not include God in his thinking. Another word might be secularism. It's just a system that doesn't include God in the way it thinks or decides. So there is a system you and I were born in. There's an understanding that, that people have a worldview that people have who don't know God. And it's a worldview that, quite frankly, doesn't include God in any of its calculations or any of this processing. It's just a secular system. And he's saying, because you were born in that environment, you were born in that world, you understand that world. If you're not careful, if you're not proactive, then you will be conformed into the system you're most comfortable with, which is the old system that he's called you out of. It is a system of secularism, the system of the world. And there's a lot of Christians that have conformed to the world. They've conformed, here's what it looks like. They don't pray about things. They don't value their time with God. They don't spend time ever in his word. They they don't honor him by their generosity. They don't see the value of being connected into the life of the church. And so what they're doing is, though they have a faith in God, it's as far as it goes, it's not a faith that is strong enough to allow them to resist the flow, to take them in a direction that's really uh, conforming them more into a system of secularism instead of conforming them into the image of his son. And so you got to be careful with that. It's easy to go with the flow. Like I said, if you've ever been in a boat, you know that you have to be purposeful where you're going, intentional. You have to have a sail or oars or a motor to get you where you're trying to go. Because chances are, if you don't have any of that and you're just left to drift, you're not going to drift in a desired direction. You're not just going to get out in the boat and say, I- I'm trying to get over there, so I'm just going to drift and see where it will t- never take you over there. <laughs> I'm just suggesting when you cut the motor to your life and you pull the oars in of your life and you drop the sails of your life, what it's going to do, ultimately you'll be conformed to the pattern of the world, secularism. You have a saved soul and a lost mind. (laughs) You'll be a person that acts one way around people that know Christ. You'll act one way in an environment of a church, but you're a totally different person when you're out back into that environment again. And and people who don't know Jesus see us acting that way and they think we're crazy. They They think we're neurotic. You know, a neurotic person acts differently in different environments. You're this way one minute, you're that way the next minute, you're this way over here, and you're that way over there. You're neurotic. I've told you before, I'd rather you be neurotic than psychotic. If you're neurotic, you're afraid of birds. If you're psychotic, you think you're a bird. And the good thing about being neurotic is it's a, it's a correctable way of thinking. You can help somebody who's a little neurotic. And I'm suggesting you that the help with neurotic Christians is in this idea of being Transformed. Proactive. He's saying by the renewing of your mind, you got to think about what you think about. And so I'm suggesting you that this renewing of the mind will result in the transformation of my life, which means I'm proactive every day so that I don't drift into the confirmation of the world. I'm being transformed into the image of Jesus, conformed into his image through this process called transformation. Now, that word transformation, we get our same word metamorphosis from that word. All the kids know about metamorphosis. You're studying it in school. It's when the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and emerges as the butterfly. The process is called metamorphosis, transformation. It's the same word. He's saying that once you and I, as Christ followers, we allow the inner nature, what's in us, to come out of us then we're no longer conformed to the pattern of a secular world. We're now being conformed into the image of his son. We're looking like Jesus. Are you seeing what he's doing? He's moving us back to the original design. He wants us to be the Imago Dei, to bring him glory, created in the image of God, though we were deformed and reformed and being conformed through being transformed so that we look like what he intended us to be in the beginning. You see the full circle. Now, how do I know if the process is working? Let me give you this, and we'll go to the house. There's three things you can check to see if your life is being transformed or you're being conformed in the image of the world. Number one, check your worship. Check your worship. Now, I know sometimes we refer to worship as something we do on the weekends, and we do. We'll say, I'm going to go get my worship on. I understand what you mean when you say that, but the reality is church is not where your worship should commence Church is where your worship should continue. Listen, worship should be a lifestyle. You ought to wake up worshiping. You ought to get up and say, good morning, Lord, instead of good Lord, it's morning. I mean, you ought to begin your day giving him worship and giving him praise. Worship, when it's done right, is a lifestyle. Now, here's the problem in the modern church with the way we think about modern worship, and that is simply this. We put so much pressure on the church that if the church doesn't check all of our spiritual boxes and we don't get all the Holy Ghost goosebumps that we were planning on getting, we say this church doesn't worship or this church doesn't meet my worship needs. When the reality is what we're saying is I don't worship any other time except when I go to church. So what I'm now doing is I'm putting all the pressure for my worship on a 35-minute worship set to get me through my week. We say that about teaching and preaching. We say, well, he's just not deep enough. I want to go deep, deep and dry. And so, what we're saying is that the only time I'm in God's Word is when I'm hearing some preacher or teacher teach it. Uh, let me apply that to your physical life, if, since we argue that from a spiritual standpoint to show you how ridiculous this is. What if we said, okay, when we leave here, here's what we're going to do: we're going to go to babes. We're going to babes when we leave here. Okay? I'm just, just, I'm just, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. Play, play with me, okay? Please play along. And we're get some fried chicken, chicken fried steak, whatever you want to do. We get those mashed potatoes. We get the corn. We get the bread. I prefer the honey to the molasses. That's like tree tar. I don't know what that is. But anyway, so you you got it. And let's say, man, we get, we, we get all that, and we eat. We just, we eat to our heart's content, and we waddle back to the car. We just waddle back to the car. And here's what we tell ourselves, I'm not eating ever again. That's my last, I am so full I am so full right now. Have you ever told yourself, like, I won't eat the rest of the day? I ate that one meal, and I am so, God, forgive me for this, but I have eaten my last meal. And we're so full because we ate so much, and we walked to the car, and we, we just feel like we couldn't have anything else. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you about 8 o'clock tonight. All of a sudden, your stomach's going to go, uh, hey, buddy. hey uh, Hey, feed me. <laughs> I'm hungry again. And if you resist that temptation tomorrow morning when you wake up, at some point, your stomach's going to be saying, dude, we got to eat again, or however your stomach talks to you. (laughs) All of a sudden, and and you go through a day or two of that, you know what you're going to do? You're going to come back and go, one meal did not get me what I needed to get me through my week physically. And what I'm saying as a pastor and your friend is one worship set and one sermon will not get you what you need to get you through your week spiritually either. I don't care how many churches you attend, and I don't care uh, how many sermons you hear. I don't care who you follow after on their worship or who you follow after on their messages. If you as a Christian cannot discipline yourself to spend time in his word and worship him every day, you will never have those needs satisfied. Never. You got to eat on your own. You got to learn how to worship. And part of that is understanding I'm responsible for my spiritual life. I can't put that on somebody else. They can pray for you, but they can't do their, your praying for you. They can read the Bible for, uh, and pray about, read, but they can't read the Bible for you. No one can eat for you. Wouldn't that be great if somebody could work out for you, though? Wouldn't that be a blessed thought? Wouldn't that be awesome? Sit down with a bowl of Bluebell and watch some guy work out. Dude, you need to add 20 pounds to that. I know I'm better than that, and I just eat another bite of ice cream. Well, you could do that, and somebody would probably let you pay them to do that, but the problem, that'd be weird. But the problem is, you're not going to benefit from that. What's my point? One of the ways I know I am transitioning into being conformed in the image of his son is when my worship becomes a part of my life. When you can be by yourself in worship. When you can walk through the woods and raise your hand and say, God, I give you praise because of who you are. Thank you that you love me and save me. And thank you that I can trust you. And thank you though I'm, my heart is heavy, my heart is broken. I know you haven't forsaken me. Man, that's worship. And you know what happens when you have that type of intensity and you come into this room with that level of worship intensity? How much higher can the worship intensity go in a service that's filled with God's children having that type of of intensity, when they meet. Second word, not just worship, but witness. Witness. How do I know when I'm transitioning and how do I know when I'm really uh, having this transformation happening where I'm moving from being conformed to the world to being conformed in the image of his son? How do I know when that transformation is happening? It affects my witness. Listen, if you love God, you'll love who he loves. If you love God, you'll love what he loves. The closer you get to God, the more you'll love people. When you have someone that has hatred in their heart, it's because they don't love God. God says if a person says that they love me and they hate their neighbor, can, can I give it to you? What John said, he said they lie. They're lying. You cannot hate your neighbor if you love God. The best thing you can do to do if you have hate in your heart is you get close enough to Jesus and you confess that sin and you allow him to transform your heart and you pray hard about the people you have hatred in your heart for. And let me tell you something. If you belong to Jesus, he will transform your heart. When you meet the sons of thunder, they're called James and John. They were haters. Sons of thunder. There's your first clue. That was their nickname. I mean, John hated people. When Jesus was going to go through the land of the, of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans says, we don't have any dealings with you Jews. You can't come through our land. It offended John to the point, you know what he said? He said, why don't we just call fire down from heaven and burn them out? He wanted to call in an airstrike. You know what Jesus said? He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. But let me tell you something about transformation. There's not another apostle in all the Bible who wrote more about transformation love than John when you found him he's a son of thunder he's a hater but because God changed his life through this process of transformation no one wrote more about love than John it'll change the way you see people one of the troubling statistics I saw on one occasion was a statistic that said within the first two years after a person connects with Jesus they have virtually no friends who do not know Jesus That's not something to embrace as a badge of honor. That's a terrible thing. We isolate and insulate ourselves from the very people he died for. I'm suggesting to you that the purpose of God's body here on the earth called the church is to do what he did. And what he did, according to Luke 19, 10, is he seeked and he saved those who were lost. He said to the religious people in Mark 2, I didn't come to call self-righteous people to repentance. I came looking for sinners. My prayer is every day God fill our building with messed up people and with lost people and look around. He's doing a good job. Love it. I love it. I'm just suggesting to you that one of the ways you know your heart is being transformed is when it affects your worship and it affects your witness. You start loving people that don't know Jesus. You don't know have a lot of friends that don't know Jesus. They're as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. That's pretty lost. They know what I do. I'm friends on the, with them on purpose. I call it a redemptive relationship. Let me tell you what it looks like. Every time I see them, I don't get in their face and scream, turn or burn, you know. <laughs> I pray for them. I encourage them. I accept them. I love them. They're my friends. You know what I'm praying for? I'm praying that I'll have a relationship with them to the point that one day, one day, God will turn their hearts Toward him. And I'll get to be there when that happens. And I'll get to love them and lead them to Jesus. One of the ways we know we're being transformed into his image is when we love the people he loves. We worship and we witness. Last word. Affects our work. Affects our work. Ephesians 2:10, you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It affects everything we do throughout our work. We're people of integrity. We're people that try to do the right thing. We try to help people. We try to be a blessing. I've told you before, I'll say this as I close now. Your life and mine, listen, may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. The only picture of Jesus might be the picture they see through your life. And if they see it, you know what that means? You're bringing him glory. You're fulfilling purpose. Good job. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. As we said, never returns void. It always accomplishes purpose. I pray this morning as your word has gone out, as your worship has happened, that you will have spoken to our hearts. I pray that we will have had receptive ears and we'll be responsive to what you've shared with us today. I pray for those who may never have trusted you. This might be the moment that their heart turns toward you. Give them the courage right where they are watching online or in this room to say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart and forgive my sin. Give purpose and meaning to my life. And for everyone else, Lord, help us to realize as we go about our day and as we move into a brand new week, You've got a reason for us being here. So I pray, Father, we'll live every moment of every day with a sense of purpose. Bless the schools that are opening now, the teachers, bless the students as they go back. Bless all the grateful parents to see their kids get to go back. Bless all the businesses that are opening and those who are maybe struggling and people in relationships. As Laney said earlier, there's so many, so many problems represented on any given weekend. But God, you are the problem-solver. You're the sin-forgiver. You're the burden-lifter So we give this to you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.